Show us the money. It's episode 29 for our edification. Thanks for joining us on this episode of For Our Edification, a podcast that unpacks how everyday stuff affects the value and identity of folks so that you can repack it for whatever your journey is. And you can find past episodes of For Our Edification at eddiefrancis.com, also on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, the very lovely Dr. Halima Lee Francis is in the spot, third time in a row. Okay, say what's hey. cracking. No, what's you gotta cracking? say what's cracking. Yeah, okay. Here's what's cracking. A USA Today article entitled How Funders, School Leaders Can Step Up to Combat Philanthropic Disparities Faced by HBCUs was uh, run a few days ago. And we're going to talk about it. And guess what? This is the return. We're going we're gonna to call this the return of the right to bear arms segment. The views and opinions expressed on For Our Edification do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the hosts, guests, or any entities with which we are affiliated. May 27th. USA Today, they run an article and it seemed prime to dive into um, ideas about addressing funding disparities between HBCUs and interestingly enough, Ivy League institutions. And Halima, what happened was I took a look at this on Twitter and I noticed that there was a president from an HBCU that tweeted something pretty interesting. Um, he quoted a line of the article in his, in his, uh, in his tweet and he used it as evidence of why he is so active on social media. Now, the line was HBCU leaders also need to do uh, also need to be better about promoting their product through tools such as social media and podcasts. Right. Here's the concern. The concern is that the article the headline, I mean, you're thinking it's going to be about looking at funding disparities. You're thinking it's going to do this dive in. But that line appeared in the second paragraph of the article. And so I was a little I was a little confused about it because I was thinking I thought I was going to read a little bit more about the actual disparities themselves. So before mm -hmm. we dive into this thing, there, there are a couple of things. All right. So first of all, I got to tell you this, Alima, um, uh, a mutual friend of ours named Kyle. Who, who seems to have a similar last name as mine, he was making fun of us because he said, wait, are you two doing a podcast on Zoom or on virtual meetings <laughs> in the house? <laughs> Maybe. So Kyle, so Kyle, you're watching this, you mind your business. All right. You so You mind the business that pays you <laughs> and not philanthropic dollars. <laughs> Worry about where that, I am. <laughs> but there, there are three points I want to make about this before we dive in, and and I really want to, I really, really want you to make this almost like your right to bear arms philanthropic masterclass on higher ed funding. Mm. <laughs> but the first thing is this: number one, um, I want to be very clear that that you know this is not an attack on the uh, writer is not an attack on the people who are quoted in the piece. Uh, it's an expansion. Uh, it's an expansion on this conversation through a little bit of analysis on the article. The second thing for our edification, see what I did there? Hearing <laughs> from a scholar um, and, 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 and in higher education, we're hearing from someone who understands philanthropy and also organizational culture. So that's what we're doing here. And here's a third thing. At the end of the day, I really want the goal for this thing to be 
uh, this. We, we we have a lot of people who are aspiring HBCU leaders. The, some people who are saying, I am going to be an HBCU president, which is beautiful. It is my hope that they listen to this and they pick up ideas that can be translated into attainable goals, attainable fundraising goals, um, and, you know, and, and philanthropic um, priorities when they become presidents uh, and or they take on leadership positions at their respective institutions. So I hope all of that is fair. Um, so let me address the social media thing first, and I'm going to address this very quickly. I yes, social media is very helpful. There is no doubt about that. But the positioning in the article to me is kind of curious because I'm thinking that it may leave aspiring HBCU leaders um, to overestimate the importance of using social media in fundraising. And, and, I, and I think it's important to keep in context that I'm looking at this article that's going to that's priming us to read about fundraising and philanthropy. And then social media comes up as part of a solution. And yeah, it can be great. It can be great. As a matter of fact, I'm going to shout out my old president, Walter Kimbrough, who pointed out um, that social media was very helpful for him when he was the president of Dillard. Um, he leveraged the great podcast episode that he did with Malcolm Gladwell, at which point I was like, OK, it was Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, you get on that podcast. I hope we get something out of it. Uh, but that opportunity doesn't come around every day. That's one that you got to really, really fight for. And the other thing is, is that and, and I got to say this as someone who has sat in the seat of being a Marcom director at three HBCUs. When you put something out there like if if folks can get on social media, if they can do stuff like podcasts, then, yeah, that's going to be a really, really helpful thing in fundraising. What that does unwittingly is that it puts Marcom teams in the crosshairs of presidents, because I guarantee you anywhere between 10 and 20 presidents, as soon as they read this, they went to their Marcom directors, their vice presidents, their whoever they have, who are the chief marketing, chief communications officers. I guarantee you they went to them and said, we got to step up our social media game and you better do it and we better go viral. And I think that's unfair. I think that's a really unfair expectation to put on folks um, especially when they have some other priorities that I'm sure are much more important than trying to make it lit and go viral on social media. And I'm happy to talk about that. So there are three, there are three points, um, Halima, uh, that I want to point out before we jump into what your thoughts are. So the first one is that there was a study done by Candid in partnership with ABFE, and I can't remember what ABFE stands for, um, Association but, of Black Foundation Executives. Thank you so much. Um, so <laughs> one of those points was funding to HBCUs from large U.S. foundations fell 30 percent uh, between 2002 and 2019, with the average Ivy League institution receiving 178 times more foundation funding than the average HBCU. Point number two that was brought up in the article uh, from 2015 to 2019, HBCUs received $303 million compared to a combined $5.5 billion to eight Ivy League institutions in that same period. And the article pointed out 99 HBCUs, but I'm pretty sure there are more than 100 uh, with this, this number. Only, you know, I talk, we, we talk about this all the time. The number just changes on a monthly basis. Um, number of HBCUs. Uh, 
Um, but still, if you're talking about multiple compared to only eight, yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of jarring. Um, and then the third point I want to bring up for reference is that HBCUs make up three percent of U.S. colleges and universities. However, HBCU grads tend to make nine hundred thousand dollars more than black graduates of predominantly white institutions or black workers without college degrees. So I, I bring up those data points because first of all, there's that big gap, but then that last data point, I think calls attention to the fact that the value is there when it comes to HBCUs. And I thought for this article, that was a perfect launch point to give more, to put meat, to put more meat on a bone when it comes to talking about ph uh, philanthropy and fundraising for HBCUs. So, with all that stuff being said, and I'm going to shut up, um, first things first, you, dear lady, um, did a great dissertation that actually covered a lot of this stuff. And so talk about your dissertation, but then also, and, and I'm sure they're going to fold this into your dissertation um, description, but also fold into that your observations about first of all just to set the table for folks for their knowledge how philanthropy works in general in society that's a lot thank you um and and thank right. you eddie for for opening the door for this conversation um because i think it compels us the article um, compels us to look at a few issues with with a level of intentionality that um, sometimes goes missing when we're looking at things like philanthropy, when we're looking at fundraising, um, when we're looking at representation, equity questions, all of those things. So I do think that the article presents us with that opportunity. Yeah. Um, my my dissertation was on the Kresge HBCU initiative, um, and it was really focused on understanding um, the impact of the initiative some probably 10 years after the uh, sunset or the, the, the conclusion of that initial body of work. So uh, the Kresge HBCU initiative was a five-year, um, $18 million program to uh, really grow fundraising capacities at HBC capacity at HBCUs and and the focus was on five institutions um, for anybody who's watching I recommend that you go uh, review um, the the report that was issued was called changing the odds and it maps out all of the elements of the initiative but the the focus was on one providing funding um, to training and technical training, um, providing tech training for um, HBCU leadership, for um, advancement staff or institutional advancement staff, um, and then three, providing technical assistance and resources um, to uh, make sure that um, the individuals who participated in the schools who uh, were recipients or a part of this project or program were able to essentially grow their ability to raise money. Um, now, my research, again, coming sometime after the end of the program, uh, 
really offered a chance to look at the long lasting impact, the enduring impact of um, of the investment of of the the program and and also what lessons could we learn from the program so through case studies um, or through that particular case study um, that was that involved interviews um, it also involved um, document review and, and some other levels of analysis um, but I really began to see that um, the conversation around securing resources and philanthropy, particularly in the context of HBCUs, is much more complex than um, than we typically give it um, give attention to. So I'm I'm really happy that you mentioned the data point about APFI. Um, the Association of Black F um, Foundation Executives, along with the work that they do, the research that they do, and the data that they collect, they do advocate for more representation of foundation executives who are who are black, um, black and brown uh, foundation executives to to provide leadership in that space. So that's an important part of this conversation. So, uh, who in the foundations are making the decisions? Um, another piece is access to foundation executives to build those relationships. Uh, the Kresge HBCU initiative was designed to build that access point or that capacity, um, because if you compare uh, development staffs or if you compare institutional advancement staffs um, to from HBCUs to peer institutions, not even bringing into the equation Ivy League institutions who have in some cases, armies of people who are raising money, then there's there's a huge disparity there. Um, oftentimes at uh, smaller institutions or um, institutions that have been historically marginalized or under-resourced, um, they have a, a, a development staff or fundraising team uh, that may be one person or, you know, on a good day, for people um, who are focusing on functions such as individual giving, foundations, uh, sometimes plan giving, annual fund, major gifts, all of the domains of, of um, private philanthropy, not to speak of other revenue generating opportunities within colleges and universities. So if we're gonna talk disparity, we do have to talk about the disparity of capacity. Um, it's, it's not just a, a disparity of, of foundation funding, it's a disparity of capacity. And um, I think that the article gives gives us room to explore some of those issues as well. Um, and these are also some of the things that I've discussed in my research. So so one, one quick thing, um, if you could give an example of an actual number of the number of staff, support staff that an Ivy League institution may have versus the number of support staff and fundraising that an HBCU has, what does that look like? So in in contexts where I've worked, um, so our, uh, our institution, I've seen, I've worked within spaces where institutional advancement uh, would be made up of uh, 
not only fundraising functions, but marketing and communications functions. So they tend to be partnered together. Um, so that's one thing is, is the function and the, the design of how they work together. Um, in some institutions I've seen um, where I've worked, and these aren't even these aren't even these aren't Ivy League institutions. <laughs> these are right. um, perhaps elite institutions, um, pri usually private, uh, with endowments in the neighborhood of um, three billion to five billion dollars. Uh, for our annual fund alone, there would be about seven people dedicated, and that's annual giving. When you get to uh, major gifts, the major gifts team would sometimes be double that. So that's 14 people or so. So we're already at 21 people. Uh, your communications team, you have somebody who's responsible, maybe two people responsible for digital marketing. You have somebody who's responsible for uh, strategy. You have someone who's responsible for um, direct appeals. So the, the mail appeals that go out and those kinds of things. Again, staff of like at least seven people um, to be to be wholly functional. Um, and then you and, get that, into, and that's that's marketing and that's marketing and communications just in development, not at the university level. Not at the university level. Oh, so these okay. people are—they're <laughs> responsible for—they're responsible for development, marketing, and communications. And then the university communications are sometimes um, housed in a different space, so they're housed in a different yeah. function within the university. They might be a part of that function, um, but they're—they're they're engaged. They—they they have very clear um, divisions of responsibility. So you'll have somebody who is focused on alumni communications versus someone who's focused on the appeals. They're not always the same people, but they support one another. Nice. <laughs> work together. <laughs> so then that brings us to alumni affairs, right? So you have a different function for alumni affairs because your alumni are one of the, they're one of the major constituencies of the university. They're, and their only priority in, in, um, reason for engagement is not to give, but they certainly present uh, a strong opportunity for, for fundraising. And I ask you that question so that anybody who is watching this or listening to this can understand. Halima mentioned that there could be seven people just in which, uh, which area you said, which area development? Annual giving. So there could be so seven people giving. in annual giving. For comparison, where I have worked, there's been no more than seven people for the entire institutional investment operation. Um, and, you know, maybe, I don't know, what do we have at Dillard? We probably had about 10 people, maybe throughout, well, throughout institutional advancement, maybe about, about 10 to 15, if you, but that includes, <laughs> that includes development, alumni relations, and research and sponsor programs. And at one point, communications and marketing was in there. And, you know, then now it's, it, it operates a little differently. But that is the entire operation. And, and I think I did mention alumni affairs being in there as well. So that is the entire operation. So just for annual giving, I mean, 
I think a lot of HBCUs might be lucky if they have one annual giving person, if they have one at all. It might be somebody. Yeah, if you have one who's dedicated, right? Somebody usually doubles. Yeah, somebody um, usually so, doubles, and then and then you mentioned marketing communications having its own have having a, a spot inside of the institutional advancement area. But where I've been, I had a staff of five people at Dillard. I was lucky to have that staff of five people. And we handled the entire university, including institutional advancement and the academic programs. And we handled all of that. But when I was at two other places, I was I was a one man show. And I was expected to handle everything for every single segment of the institution. So for comparison, I just I just really wanted people to hear the comparison of numbers right there. As, as someone who teaches in public administration, so I lead a public administration program, capacity, capacity and culture are, are two things that um, really um, usually when I'm looking at challenges, when I'm looking at um, how do we get to the next level, when when we are we were when we're analyzing um, deeply institutionalized problems um, or exploring great opportunities, the conversation always comes back to capacity. Um, and then there's a quick second is the culture. So can we support this in the the resources that we have? So we got we all have big dreams. We all want to you know, achieve whatever we achieve, but can, is it feasible without, um, is, is it feasible period? Um, and then do we have an organizational culture that is conducive to supporting and sustaining what we do? So do you have a culture that is, um, that embraces, um, risk, or can you afford mm. to embrace risk? Do you mm. have a culture of um, that embraces ongoing learning? So when when mistakes are made, do you do you take a step back and assess where the system was broken and how we can fix the system and move forward with that knowledge? Are you a culture um, that you you talk a lot, and I really appreciated this. Um, employer branding. So how do you engage with your employees? Do you see opportunities to continue to grow your employees um, so that their skills are continued to be developed? I, I, I get calls from people who say, well, you know, I, I was put in a job um, or I, I got this new job and I very quickly figured out that I didn't have the training or the expertise to do the job. And they were things that that didn't come up necessarily in their resume, things that didn't come up in the interview. But a, a lot of these things were were tied to culture. So I'm not used to leading people. So I don't really understand mm. how to ask people or how to engage with my team. So these are all really, really important questions. Um, and particularly when you start to get into development, um, because a lot of it is relational, it's it's even that more um, important to to interrogate and to to kind of to ask those questions. Hmm. So what about the role of philanthropy in society in general? I mean, what what does that look like? Because I think a lot of folks, when they when they see this sort of thing, it was interesting to me in the article that there was so much focus on large foundations. Um, hmm. And so 
Um, I'm sitting here, you know, knowing you because I've been sitting at the feet of the <laughs> fundraising and philanthropy expert all this time. And I'm sitting here going, well, I wonder what Halima would think of this because they keep talking about foundations. So, <laughs> so, so, I mean, so talk about how, how philanthropy yeah. works in society, especially the way you view philanthropy working yeah. in society. Yeah. So I, I view philanthropy as a tool for um, advancing the common good of society. Um, you know, a lot of times when people talk about philanthropy, they, they break it down to the Latin and it's love for mankind or love for humanity. Um, and that is certainly a part of it. Um, it's a, it, it, it is a, a central part and an essential part to philanthropy. Uh, however, philanthropy has the ability to to operate and work um, in some diverse ways and, and beyond a moral um, a moral imperative. And I, I talk about oftentimes um, what we see in philanthropy is not always good. Like it's, it's not always inherent, but but it's it's subject to what the philanthropists interpretation of good is right so mm -hmm. if you have a donor who seeks to build a labor force um and you know this is a this is one of the one of the historical kind of narratives of of um philanthropy for hbcus if you have a donor who at a point in time has the ability, capacity, and a certain set of beliefs around developing a labor force or or educating a group of people in a certain way, um, then their dollars are going to follow that mission, um, usually. So philanthropy has the ability to shape our society, literally. It has just, it's an infusion of funding and resources that has the ability to um, provide hospitals and medical institutions and research, provide things like education. So very quickly, if you start to think about philanthropy in the framework of um, its, its, its societal shaping capacity, um, you really quickly start to see that many of the anchors of, of our society, many of the critical elements of our society um, philanthropy has played a role in, whether it be testing out ideas, whether it be implementing things, um, the nature of philanthropy, it moves faster than than, than a lot of other domains of, of, of public service and public administration. So if you look at it, oftentimes philanthropy is called the, the third sector. So if you look at it alongside government, corporate, and then philanthropy and, and nonprofits together with that, then you start to see that the movement of resources is a lot different. It's a lot more independent. Um, it is, it is in, in some ways a lot less regulated. So there are implications for all of that in terms of how philanthropy plays a role in shaping what we see. Um, the best models and the models that, that I tend to appreciate, I don't want to say the best, but the ones I appreciate the most are the models where philanthropy can work as a partner um, can work hand in hand, wh whether that's with the, the beneficiary or the, the recipient um, or whether that's with other sectors and with other um, with other service domains. So uh, philanthropy is a pretty uh, 
powerful, beautiful, complex tool that can take on a lot of different characteristics. And, you know, I, I talk about one of the things that, that um, really made me, and I, I hate to say like fall in love with philanthropy, but I do think I love philanthropy, <laughs> um, is, is thinking about the, the social justice um, capacity and opportunity within philanthropy. Um, you know, at, at different points in history, we've seen that uh, when a change needs to be made, when, um, and the, the article references this in, in talking about the infusion of funding in the wake of, of the George Floyd murder, um, it, mm-hmm. but philanthropy um, has the ability to change the tide. It has the ability to to amplify and bring visibility to some issues that aren't always popular or or aren't always um, given the attention that they deserve. So um, there's a tremendous amount of power in philanthropy. And and I go back to, to the representation of foundation executives and the representation of, of philanthropic advisors, um, having people of color sit in those seats and having access to those tools and influencing um, that lever of change is is critically important. Um, so that's I just I see a lot there within within philanthropy. You're listening to him or you're watching uh, for our edification. I'm Eddie. She's in Lima. And um, just a couple of things to note, by the way, um, we do have a couple of episodes of for our edification dedicated to philanthropy. So there's episode eight, uh, which is understanding black philanthropy, two friends of yours. And you had a really, really cool conversation yeah. um, in that episode. Um, and then episode 11, um, uh, understanding or having a what's a, what does it mean to have a philanthropic idea? identity, uh, which mm-hmm. is, uh, yet another great, um, conversation that, uh, that Halima led right there. And so I, you know, I, 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 I wanted people to get an idea of, um, what exactly goes into all of this. So, all right. So let's, let's talk about some, uh, another area where you are pretty well versed and that is understanding higher education itself. Um, because, and, and I don't, I don't mean to, I don't, I don't mean to to give the 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 guy who wrote the article uh, a hard time um uh because I did look him up and he actually writes a lot about diversity equity inclusion and so um so this article seemed to really mean something to him to write it but it's only an 800 word article about a pretty heavy topic and a pretty and a pretty involved topic and so I think a big piece of this is that I think people who don't understand higher education might have been left with the impression that there are only two ways for an institution to raise money, tuition and donations. Mm. Um, And so what are other ways the colleges and universities, especially privates, what are other ways the colleges and universities uh, make revenue, raise money? Yeah. So, and I'm I'm glad you, you kind of, you talk about the positioning of the article because what it did for me, um, it made me curious to revisit, um, research and and areas because my doctorate is in higher ed administration. So one thing that that makes me do 
is really think about the contexts within that 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 um, higher and post-secondary education institutions operate within. So things like historical context, context, social contexts, um, place, classifications, all those different domains. So this article, um, one thing that was interesting was that the comparison point was um, HBCUs and Ivy League institutions. Um, not an apples to apples comparison for a lot of different reasons, um, but it nonetheless, it, it, I, I went directly to look at, it may be curious about particularly Harvard's um, financial um, report and, and financial source sources. So I, I went to look at uh, Harvard's financial report for 2022. Um, and I found some consistencies there in terms of revenue. Um, but I also found some interesting points that I'll share in unpacking this thing because we're we're packing and unpacking. Um, so traditionally, revenue sources are, um, and this is for private institutions, um, tuition, um, philanthropy, um, in some cases, federal, state, and local appropriations. That tends not to be so much the case with privates, but it just depends on, again, the context and the environment that they're operating within. Um, endowment revenue is another area. So people talk about endowment, 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 and endowments are, um, they function for the long-term financial stability and, and sustainability of the institution. Endowments kick off revenue, um, typically somewhere in the five to five and a half percent um, where institutions can use the revenue for their, their operating expenses, right? So your endowment is important. You're not meant to spend it all, but yeah, I was about to, to say because there's some people think you can go to the endowment like it's the bank and you can just take some money out. There's, and there's a difference between an endowment and a reserve fund. So reserve funds have a lot more um, fluidity in terms of how they can be spent. Um, so just think about it in that context. Another area where um, there is opportunity, I think, for, for HBCUs um, is in the area of research and um, other services and other things that they that they produce, um, such as publications. Um, so there are other revenue generating areas. So foundations very quickly, I mean, philanthropy broadly, yes, is a significant piece of the pie, but foundations, uh, when you look at it, they're one of, you know, five, perhaps six or seven um, revenue sources for institutions. And in my opinion, I do think that if we're looking at kind of uh, stability of of resources, uh, philanthropy is is pretty. Um, it can be high risk um, yeah. because it a lot of it varies or there's 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 change based on uh, being directly responsive to what's happening in society in this moment. And if you can't demonstrate a connection in your work to what's happening or what the concern of the philanthropist foundation or individual, um, what their concern is, then that, that 
edges you or that that creates a, a smaller window of opportunity. So to me, um, considering revenue sources of colleges and universities broadly, I think it is very risky to put all of your eggs in the tuition back basket. And I think it's very risky to put all of your eggs or the, the, the other eggs that you haven't put in the tuition basket mm-hmm. into the revenue basket. Yeah, and, and there was um, a, now, there was a the, and there was a professor from Howard who they quoted in the mm-hmm. uh, Robert Palmer, um, and he actually when they talked about all the money that HBCUs raised during 2020 or after 2020, you know during the the year of reckoning as we've been calling it, um, but he pointed that out. You know Palmer said it's about the moment, and mm-hmm. so a mm-hmm. lot of people asked during that time. Okay, what's going to happen when this all wears off and people aren't feeling so, <laughs> you know, and you, people aren't and you feeling see, so, and- you know, bad. and there's and there's you're we're seeing counterattacks now like we're seeing um limitations on equity initiatives we're seeing um things that are directly intended to um turn that clock backwards where we're not having we're not even um providing our students with access to knowledge around historical um, racial challenges and, and racism and all those other things. So that is, that's, as I think about this with my sociological lens, because my other, my master's is in um, sociology of education. So when I think about this from that perspective, um, there is a counterbalance. So you may have, yes, you may have philanthropy that is um, awarding millions of dollars in grants in um, uh, in funding, but on the other side, you have policy that is actively prohibiting the the execution of that work. So you start to see kind of a, a push and pull or a tug tug of war um, that some some schools are more. Um, more subjected to than others. Again, a lot of this is, is qualified in, in within the context of publics and privates. But um, there, there's a give and take in the philanthropic world, um, and and it's it doesn't operate kind of independently of everything else. It, it is a lot more flexible, but it it can be um, it can be risky to put all of your eggs in that basket. So. For me, um, models that are a lot more um, broad and holistic um, and diverse, because at any given time, like endowments at one point in time, when we were looking at the economic downturn, um, gosh, that was a while ago. It doesn't feel like that long ago. But everybody was saying, you know, it's a liability to have a large endowment. And it was because it's it's subject to market. but and then, and then at that time, people were saying, you know what? Well, it's great that we have a large pool of annual fund donors. So as an institutional leader taking a step back and not getting so, you know, taking a step back and looking at your fiscal, um, your fiscal resources, your revenue, um, your projections for 5, 10, 20 years. So the legacy of of the work that you do at the institution, looking at it 
from a, a fiscal sustainability lens will very quickly pull you out of the conversation of being dependent, dependent on, on philanthropy and certain types of philanthropy. Um, foundations are wonderful partners. They are wonderful partners, but I'm not an advocate. I'm not even an advocate of being dependent on individual donors. So relying on your alumni base is important, but what if something happens where you um, are producing a base of alumni um, who aren't able, well, producing a base of alumni who are, are facing recession and job loss? You know, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to fundraise from that same population the same way. How do foundations and other funders measure the profile, reputation and potential ROI when it comes to an institution that they might be looking to work with. And, and the other thing is, is that they, people, people, they want to make this such a public conversation all the time. And it always turns into, well, the people have to see that we are working really hard to, to make them. And I'm like, no, you don't have to make it a public conversation. Move in silence, you know, follow the Lil Wayne philosophy, you know, be, you know, be lasagna. Be, yeah. Jeez, you know, <laughs> moving silence like lasagna. You don't have to tell everybody what you did. Lasagna. You have to tell everybody you got a check. Not everybody needs to know mm. you got a check. You know, no. and so, yeah, so, but wait, what were you about to say? So I was, I was about to say um, that your, your perspective on media engagement and, and doing so in a thoughtful way. One thing I really appreciate about that is that you focus on analytics. So you, you like to bring analytics into the conversation. So if you start to kind of chart what, what the story that went vi- viral um the impact that it stands to have, you get a peak of of recognition and you get a peak of um, maybe even an influx of funding. But the question is then how do you keep the down the downside of that slope from happening? Because it's yes. a peak and a valley, peak and valley, peak and valley. Yeah. So how do you how do you level how do you make how do you create a a, a shelf from that peak? So you were here and I'm doing really bad like demonstration of my quantitative data. People just close your eyes. Don't even look at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you were here, you get this peak and then the job is not to go back to here, but to use it to maybe get here. So you may not be mm. here cause this is a peak. So, but you do need to be higher than what your next lowest level was. So how are you going to build on that story or how are you going to build on that exposure in a strategic way? So that story can become a way to open the door for um, for visibility, but it, it shouldn't be your full visibility strategy. Um, it, so it should, going yeah, viral. It, yeah. It, <laughs> and and um, yeah, going viral is, again, high risk. Um, and I and when I say risk, um, I, I'm thinking about it in terms of uh, not only what it stands to produce, but how much control do you have over that? Um, how much can you predict? How much can you control? So risk isn't only we stand to get $50 billion, 
But risk is how much can you control the notice and the attention that your institution is going to get given the contexts of the market that is operating in. So if you're thinking about a media market, our media market has a certain set of values or a certain set of things that are trending. You got to jump on the lead. You got to, you know, engage in the conversation that's happening right now. And how much of that is authentically beneficial to you as an institution? Um, what conversations do you need to be in and what conversations do you don't, do you want to be in? Um, what is the media appetite for how it positions and treats certain types of institutions, um, particularly HBCUs? So there's tons of research that talks about, um, media's predisposition to, um, report the negativity of HBCUs. So we hear about all of the accreditation losses. We hear about the shootings on campus. We hear about, you know, there, there's a few check boxes that we tend to hear about um, with HBCUs and perhaps urban institutions. But if you put, if you do a media audit of HBCU coverage versus, and for the purpose of this article, Ivy League institution coverage, you're going to see very quickly that there is, again, an equity disparity in how institutions are represented. So given that environment, given the reality of that, that social construct in that environment, is media dependence your best strategy? No. And that's a question for you to answer. Not, not you, Eddie. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, a, that's a question. I don't mean, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm an evidence-based decision maker, so I want to know the evidence, and, you know, and if the answer is yes for you, then by all means do it. Like there, I think there's some some institutions where media is is uncharacteristically friendly, and they tend to be the ones where, and they, you know, I don't have to name them, but they tend to be the ones that are always highlighted in ways, and 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 you know, and that creates some other a different set of challenges, but. Um, is the media your truly your friend? And what does it take to make the media your friend for for some of these institutions? So, um, or or is that so, so, is that the best use of your time? So, so <laughs> sorry, no. So, <laughs> but but let me let me explain why. And I want I want to get back to your answer, but let me explain why. And and this is an actual conversation that happened. I was asked about media exposure, media exposure, media exposure. How are you going to get us in the media? How are you going to get us in media? And my response was, I went to the university website and it is outdated. Mm -hmm. So you get your moment in the sun, you get your magical media story, you get billions of dollars worth of, of exposure, you know, ad exposure out of this story, but your website is outdated. Do you, did you really get what you needed out of it? And uh, they might say, well, we got some donations, but did you get all the donations you could have gotten if said donor or donors or alumni or whoever had gone to the website and the website was updated and, and, and the website was, you know, it had the proper information that it needed. And so I frustrated a few people when I said, I want to get away 
from the media thirst trap. And what I would like to do is I would like to dig into the website because people are constantly searching, 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 searching on the internet, constantly doing that. And I want to beef up, beef up our search engine optimization. I want to go in there. Mm -hmm. I want to kill the metadata game. I want to get the tags right. I want to get the keywords right. I want to get in there and I want to, I want to fill it all up and I want to do a strategy. Not only that, I want to generate campus stories and mm -hmm. I want all those stories to live on our website. That way mm -hmm. we are always in control of our narrative, always yeah. in control of the narrative. Yeah. And we're yeah. not sitting there with our thumbs up our butts, waiting for people to come run to the camp, uh, campus with their cameras and say, oh, your university is the most wonderful thing we have ever seen in the history of higher education. And it's like, no, we need to say that we're the most wonderful thing in the history of uh, higher education. We need to own that story. And one, there was a podcast I, or I, uh, I created and people got so frustrated with me because they wanted to know how come the podcast didn't have thousands of downloads. And I said, here's the purpose of this podcast. And this is where I do agree with the article, but in a different way. My thing was, I want to create the podcast. I want to finish. I want to interview all of these faculty we got, all the our great, wonderful faculty. Give them the link. They can include it mm. in their grant packages they can include, they can use that link however they need to do it. And they can, that's how they can get their funding or that's how they can get attention. Am I worried about getting thousands of downloads? No, what I'm worried about is making sure that we have something that highlights our services that we can send, like we make a direct pipeline to whoever those potential funders are. And that's more of a marketing strategy than it is a communication strategy. And so, I started yeah. to really drift more in the marketing side of the house, which is more of a business function than the communication side of the house. And it really frustrated people because it wasn't fabulous. It wasn't lit. It wasn't going to set the world on fire and tell everybody our names. And I was sitting there like, everybody knows our names. They, they know well, the name, and I, but you got it, but use... you got to use it wisely. That was, that was my thing. Yeah. All yeah, right. I I'm, think I'm about... done. Thank you. I think <laughs> I think maximizing the usage of those tools. So yeah. um, when I was a chief philanthropy officer and, you know, having been a director of development and alumni relations and um, just other engagement areas with philanthropy and, and funders, I use that kind of stuff as stewardship tools. So um, exactly. I can I can use there was there was one place where I was where we used um, specific episodes of our podcast and we would send it in the 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 report that you because you have to submit a report mm -hmm. to to funders. Um, we put links to it in the report and use that as evidence and use that as um, as a form of data as narrative data um, to demonstrate the impact of their funding. Um, every, you know, every intro outro to that, to that podcast or on the website or somewhere, we know that we thank the funder. So they heard their name on the particular episodes. And um, that was part of our stewardship strategy. Um, there's been other cases where I, I do agree with um, housing your story in your space. Um, as a strategy, and I disclaimer, 
um, out of all of the functions uh, within, well, several of the functions within um, development, marketing and communications has probably been the furthest away from from my work. But the thing, but I, I have always built great relationships with my Marcom folk um, because they're they're the experts in this stuff, and and I I depend on them um, to help me strategize and figure out okay what's the best use of of the resources and the tools that we have. So. You know, if you're more calm person, if you make if you make us mad, we have creative ways of forgetting the people who make us mad. So, oh Lord, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But if you love on us, oh my goodness, we will blow you up. Yeah, so you love on yeah. your Marcom people. Love on them. Thank- <laughs> Thankfully, I have never crossed the path of a disgruntled Marcom person, but I've heard horror But there was stories. one who anyway. had a crush on you, and look at what he did. Y- you know what? <laughs> <laughs> it's in that episode. So... <laughs> But, you know, being able to think creatively about how you engage in media exposure and to what end. like, And there are, when you talk about media, I mean, there's lots of domains of media. Like, you don't always have to pursue, mm-hmm. like, news coverage or right. social media right. exposure. There are times, and because colleges and so. I'm not going to get in this, but colleges and universities, one of their primary functions is producing knowledge or um, making knowledge accessible. So there are times where you need to be represented in certain industry journals or you need to be represented in media outlets that are curated a bit differently um, that focus on what you do and they they're better positioned to highlight what you do. So I, I think it's both and, you know, but yeah. but at the end of the day, take a holistic approach and be strategic about it. Um, yeah. the, the, the biggest waste of resources and just the biggest waste of, of resources, the limited precious resources that your funders have invested in you or your donors or whoever, wherever you get your revenue from, the biggest, one of the biggest wastes of those resources is to make some knee jerk trend driven decisions that um, are not, they're they're impulse, they're impulse. And to be clear, there's a difference between being responsive and being impulse driven. Um, So recognize the distinction, recognize the distinction. Um, So, and that's a very long way <laughs> of, of addressing your, your question, but um, I, I do think there is um, being thoughtful and being strategic about how you engage with media. The other thing I'll add when you ask the question of how does this have to be a public conversation? Um, I, I lean more, and this is probably the conservative part of Halima in you know, um, under promise and over deliver, um, conservative part of my temperament, but I tend not to talk unless I got something to say, or I really did something. So I'm not talking just, I'm I'm not talking to announce that it's going to happen. (laughs) Um, I, I try to 
particularly when so higher ed when you're announcing when you're announcing changes in curriculum when you're announcing um, things that are governed by other bodies that have to you know give you approvals um, and that kind of thing so I tend to like to make a big splash once the accomplishment has has been made so once we've once we've won um, and then I can say we went, we won. And these are the, this is the work that went into winning, or this is the work that went into this achievement. Um, so I, I think being again, strategic and judicious in how and when, and how and when you engage with the media, um, what platforms you're engaging on, um, who, who gets access to what information, um, and this is, and everything isn't meant to be public. I mean, it's, it's just like, you know, in your mama's house, you know, your, your family, she said, I don't want to hear my business out in the street. And it, it's <laughs> not a negative kind of thing of I'm trying to hide something, but it is being wise about how much you give, how much access um, you're giving people and how and thereby how much control you're giving people to define the direction of your narrative and the value of your narrative. Um, but that, so, but that's, that's my big thing though. My big question with that. And the reason I was asking you this is, do you have foundations? Do you have funders? Do you have people who are, you know, they, they, they really judge reputation or they judge reliability or are they, do they get that sparkle in their eyes when they see either somebody they're funding or somebody they're thinking about funding? I mean, does it make that big a difference that people have to be in the media making all these announcements, doing all these things? Or is it more about these funders or these foundations saying, listen, just do the work, just get it done, because that's where the real ROI is for us. We want to see you produce. And we don't care whether you make an announcement about it. We just want to know that you're producing. I mean, how does that work? So funders tend to want to make so solid sound investments. Um, I've seen cases where funders, and, and when I say funders, I'm talking about foundations, um, where they have misjudged because they saw a media story that said something you know, amazing things are happening at this place. And is, invested, is it the announcement that happens before the thing actually happens? Is it that kind? Is it misjudged because sometimes, of that? Sometimes, okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so th this is going to happen. It's an amazing place, and and I hate you know the funder press releases. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> I'm just and like we haven't funder, done it yet. Why are we making such a big deal? I mean, it's like, can we write the press release when we do it? I'm sorry. And then ahead. the funder calls. <laughs> The funder follows up um, if, if, you know, if you have that relationship with the funder. They're like, hey, I saw this article that you're about to do this great thing. How can we support it? And nobody has a proposal ready. Like nobody has, no, the project hasn't been conceptual. There's no concept. There ain't even a concept paper. <laughs> Forget a proposal with a budget that's fully fleshed out with an evaluation plan and all this. Because I'm like... Sorry. Well, no, but but this is legitimate because again, I, I think one of the groups that's important to talk to is that aspiring HBCU leader. Yes. And I think it's important for that aspiring leader to understand 
what it means what it means for the rubber to hit the road to get the funding that that's what i want that person to understand um i want to come back to your your question about um funders responsiveness or how funders respond to media uh, media hits and you know they you always want to see success from from the places where you invest and where you where you support but i do think that the relationships are a lot more um the one-on-one relationships with funders are a lot more valuable a lot more predictable um and then again things you can control so i can't necessarily control what the program manager at x foundation is reading um i can't control what they put in their google alerts to 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 give them a, a heads up on what i can control is being able to communicate with them oftentimes and and a lot of times and this is a practice that I developed or just it was taught to me um, when I first started in fundraising like decades ago, Um, not too many decades ago, but enough. (laughs) Um, So reaching out to folk and asking if you can introduce yourself and talk to them. So I, I ask, you know, first I introduce myself. I'm the blah, blah, blah of the blah, blah, blah. Um, I saw your work at such and such. And I would like to learn more about your priorities and share news with you about some of the work that we're doing. When would be a good time for us to connect? So really easy door opener, you know, and and for me, I had a spreadsheet of, of foundations or, or donors that I was, um, that I wanted to engage and I I used our uh, research team. So again, if your development office doesn't have a research or prospect research arm, um, you're making your life very difficult. Um, So I I would use the research team to say, okay, well, these are prospects who might be, you know, good sources. And then I would follow up with them because, you know, when you send that initial outreach, someone may respond, they may not respond. You don't know what they have on their plate at the time. So I would put notes on my calendar to re- to follow up with folk um, at a cadence that made sense to me. Sometimes it's two weeks, every two weeks. Sometimes it's monthly. Um, usually by the third time I get a response. Um, and that has been the case for me when I'm when I'm trying to get speakers when I'm trying to, you know, in the higher profile, the higher, the, the more, the busier the person may be, the more you may have to send that note. Um, and then being understanding when they do respond to you, um, to say, Hey, you know, I'm so glad that you responded. I know you have a lot on your plate, so your time is valuable. Um, and, and what you've done is you've started to build a relationship. Um, and, that person, um, as the representative of that fund, sees that operationally um, this organization is more likely to follow through or operationally this organization um, takes a, a diligent approach to might take a, a diligent approach to the work that they do because they see how you handle the initial 
part of the, the relationship. So I think that while media hits and media coverage will certainly give you that sparkle and splash and, and you know, give you that that ex- that initial exposure, um, I always go back to relationships and and I, you know, I I'm pretty old school with how do we get our foot in the door? Um, because you don't if if you don't have access to the relationship, then you know, you it's hard to make that ask if you can't if you can't connect with the people. Um I also work to make sure that the work that I'm doing or to make sure it's a good fit. So not every funding source or not every funder is going to be interested in the work that you do. Um, I try to play matchmaker sometimes. Um, And again, that goes back to it. So whenever they do develop an interest in what I'm doing, they'll remember that I connected them to another organization. And it it just, it, it grows your community. It grows um, the level of trust. I don't just cut people off and say, you know, oh, well, you can't fund me. So I don't need to talk to you. I don't need to waste my time anymore talking to you. I, mm-hmm. I try to connect them with others because I, w- w- you know, what's not coming to me, I want to share it with my community. So um, one of my colleagues or one of somebody I know in another organization, they may have programming that's a better match. So some of this goes back to just fundamentally like how you're treating your donors. And I think foundations, um, they, they, they pay attention to this. And, and if you, a, another point of value for this is that, you know, some, some program managers at foundations stay at their organizations for years and years and years, and they, they progress into different roles in the organizations if they don't stay, chances are they may go to another foundation. So you're either cultivating relationship with someone who may help you deepen your um, your engagement and access to a specific foundation, or you're cultivating somebody who is in this the who's in the profession, and now they can you know advocate for you or be your champion or be your friend. Um, in diverse spaces and in, and in different places. So, cause they're all going to conferences. They're all, you know, they're all talking to each other. They can, they can say your name in rooms where you're not there. Um, so I, I just, I, I really, I, again, another kind of Halima code is that I really um, put a lot of care into the relationships that I've developed with funders and, and how I treat funders. Like I don't just treat them as I need to get the check. I need to, I need to close this gift. And I know that there's an urgency that is, um, that, that is throughout the field where we, we operate from a space of uh, crisis. Sometimes we operate from a space of lack um, and that produces that desperation. But I think it's critical that we, we resist it and we really, um, are thoughtful and caring and compassionate about how we um, work together to to create the change that we want to see. So, um, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the way forward. Um, yes. So, so 
So the the article mentioned um, a UNCF study, actually a, a really popular UNCF study mm-hmm. uh, that concluded that HBCUs consistently do more with less, you know, punch above their weight, as uh, UNCF puts it. And that's great. Um, but I can tell you from having <laughs> worked at three HBCUs, that also that is also very stressful to have to constantly do more with less and to have to constantly punch above your weight class. Um, it, it wears you down. It burns you out. Um, and I, but I think that I think that a lot of HBCUs can get some of the results that they want to get if they do so in a resourceful way. Um, and so what does that look like to you um, for an institution that that's under resourced to be able to work in a resourceful way to get the kinds of results that they want to get in funding. So foundational to that for me, or the counter question is if we do more with less, if we consistently do more with, with less, what would it look like if we got, if we had more? So doing, we could do more with more, we could protect the more that we've done with more, um, you know, punching above your weight. If you think about athletes who constantly perform outside of their um, outside of their ability, or they they're constantly putting stressors on their um, performance without building muscle or without building endurance, what's going to happen to that athlete? So beyond personal stress, beyond staff stress, um, because everybody doesn't value, like, everyone does not care about (laughs) how how stressed you are. Like, that's just, that's a reality. Um, Mm -hmm. But what could we do with more? Um, And I think that compels us, again, to look at um, where we get our resources from and how do we grow all of those areas. Um, I, I regularly hear from people that cert, what what certain types of institutions don't do. So certain types of institutions don't do research. What if we did some research? What could happen? Is there, you know, is is there a rule in our governing bylaws that prohibits that specifically prohibits us from doing research? If the answer is no, it's fair game. And people make people generate a lot of revenue off of research. Um, so I think really looking at the things that you don't traditionally do and considering whether or not those are viable options um, for you in this moment in time. And if not, when? So do we want to have a 20 year plan or strategic plan that's going to to get us to the to the space where we can do some of the things that we characteristically say we don't do, we don't do well, um, you know, what's going to take, what is it going to take to get us there? Um, I think another thing that we can do um, in the terms of, of resources is invest in, invest in people. So I believe in professional development. Um, I believe in growing the, once I find good people 
investing and growing those people. Um, I also believe in being pretty intentional about trying to position people in roles where they where they want to thrive and where they, you know, so where they have true interest and where they have true ability. Um, I don't like to set people up for failure um, Mm -hmm. for karmic reasons, but it's just, it's an expensive practice. So when you're not investing, think about, uh, and and there's a a data point somewhere that talks about the cost of, and you've, you've mentioned this as well, Eddie, the cost of hiring a new employee versus Mm -hmm. the cost of um, growing talent um, internally Mm -hmm. or advancing an employee. And a lot of times people are like, well, you know, we spend X amount of dollars in hiring a new employee. And one element they always leave out is the the search process. The search Mm -hmm. process can be the most, depending on the position, it can be the most expensive part of the process in time and money. So quantifying and being very clear on, okay, I have this person who they may not excel in this area, but are there other things, other places I can put them? Because when they leave, they take that institutional knowledge with them. They take they take so much with them that you've invested in them. And, and I would argue probably for every year that that person has been there, you're losing something upon their departure. So, you know, how, how do you um, truly invest in, in, in your people and making sure that they, they have the knowledge and the, the tools and, um, and the environment that they need to succeed? Um, the other thing I'll say is think about how you position yourself as an institution. So positioning is in, and, and how you position yourself as a leader. So I'm big on, um, for institutional leaders, executive, executive leadership, um, presidents, deans, provosts, whatever you, you know, whatever the position is and being clear on what your purpose and what your mission is for the work that you're engaging in. So not only, you know, you started the conversation with, with saying, um, with people talking about people who are aspiring to be, um, HBCU leaders and perhaps presidents. Why, why, why do you want to do that? Um, and, it, and if the answer is simply because I just want to be a HBCU president, I think you need to spend some more time thinking about it um, and think about <laughs> the change that, that you want to, uh, seriously, I think you want to, I think you need to sit down and think about what you want to produce, what you want your legacy to be and the lineage of leadership, because if the, the school didn't start with you, it's not going to end with you. So what is your legacy in the lineage of leaderships and the identity of this inst- institution? And what what are you bringing to the legacy? Is it that you want the to to position or to be a part of positioning the um, the institution as um, in their scholarly endeavors. So do you want to elevate the, the visibility of faculty research and, and, and what faculty produce? Do you want to elevate um, 
the what students bring to the community or your student community? Do you want to elevate the community impact of, of the institution? Um, I really appreciate um, Jelani Favors um, shelter in a time of storm because he talked about the impact of HBCUs and the civil rights movement. Um, and that to me, I mean, there's already there have been conversations about the anchor impact of, of colleges and universities and HBCUs. But that to me pushes the conversation of how HBCUs position themselves. Um, no, is not every HBCU is going to be this kind of community anchor um, or be a community anchor in, in um, the senses that it's, it's typically talked about, but it's something to explore. So think, think, think intentionally about how the institution is positioned. Well, thank you, Halima. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us on this episode of For Our Edification. Make sure you check out the past episodes at eddiefrancis.com on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download, give feedback, and share. Halima, you, you see, this is why this is why everybody thinks you were just the bomb, the busy, busy bomb. This is exactly I why. I am. Thank <laughs> I'm Eddie Francis. <laughs> I'm Eddie Francis, and she is Halima Leek Francis, and I use she and her pronouns. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on for our edification.